Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 80 of the sports movie podcast we call Scoring at the Movies. We've been talking about motion pictures with jock-type things in them for just over three years, and we never hesitate to discuss every single plot detail, so know that now. We're going to ruin it. I'm the AV dork who mouths off to a jock dickweed and avoids being beaten up because I'm friends with a friend of the nice jock, Ryan Ellis. And here's the superficial tennis player who comes to a new town and throws everybody's life into upheaval, Kerry Green, but he's better known as Chris DiGregorio. Oh, thanks, Ryan. It's funny how many similarities there were in this movie to real life. You know, like the way I initially met you was when I was practicing tennis in a short skirt by your house. And then I caught you peering at me through the chain link fence. And as always happens, whenever a creepy stalkerish person just stares at me, I instantly befriended you. There's no looking back. Now we just have a podcast together. That's the way life works. I was doing more than peering. Yeah, but I'm trying to keep this particular episode PG, so I'm not going to go into too much detail about how you were occupying mm. yourself, but true to life, I guess, is the moral of the story. Bev watched this movie with me because she liked it from her youth, and we had a good time with it, but I pointed out when it was almost over, I said, there's been no four-letter words in this movie, have there? And right at that point, or just soon after, is when he does use, meaning Lucas, the one F-bomb you can get and still have a PG or PG-13 rating when he calls the coach, or he says something like that to the coach. That's right. You said this was a movie that Bev remembered from her youth, because it's like a, what, 1986 release or something like that? 86, yeah. I had no clue this movie existed until you suggested it. I assume you must have seen it more or less contemporaneously to the release as well, or is this a movie you found later in life just by coincidence? Probably teens. Okay. 15 or so. But of course on home video and videotape back in those days. I think I've seen it at least four times. I've always enjoyed it, maybe more as I've gotten older in some ways, even though it is obviously a kid's movie more so because of the high school kids. We'll get into this a little later on. Maybe you don't even know about this story when you talk about controversies. And you were joking, of course, with Carrie Green and Corey Haim and their puppy love and him objectifying her, so to speak. Although I think he wants her more for her friendship and her brains and her and not so much for her physicality, which is what Cappy would want more being Charlie Sheen. But the controversy, do you know about it with Charlie Sheen and Corey Haim? Oh, I think I heard about the rumors a year or two ago, yeah, that there might have been some on-screen assault stuff going on, right? Or not on-screen, on behind-the-scenes assault stuff going on, rather. I guess the short form of the story is that Corey Feldman, after Corey Haim had died, said that they were both abused as kids and that Corey Haim was flat-out raped. And he didn't say who it was. And then sometime later, he said it was two guys that no one really would know their names. Industry people would know the other two names. I don't remember who they are. But then he also accused Charlie Sheen of literally anally raping Corey Haim on this movie. What a dark way to start this podcast about a very fun movie. But I had to bring it up because it is one of the famous stories about a movie that isn't controversial. It's got so many nice, sweet things in it. And Charlie Sheen has probably never been sweeter in a movie in his entire life. But he apparently was raping this young kid who was so good around this time frame. And then he died of, I think, a drug overdose or something. I mean, something like 37 years old. If Corey Feldman's not telling lies, that may be why he had a drug problem and then died so young. God, man. <laughs> I don't know where to go from that. 
<laughs> I was going to tell you that story later if you didn't know it, but it came up. I might as well get it over with. Well, we get the bad stuff out of the way first, although it probably will come up again. Yeah, isn't that awful to think that happened to anybody, but especially when you actually liked the guy who was doing this to you, and according to, I think, Feldman, loved him. Corey Haim's life is a tragic story any way you slice it. This movie caught me by surprise. I knew Corey Haim was the lead in it, but I didn't remember until I started watching it that Charlie Sheen was actually in it. And then, of course, that Winona Ryder was in this in what I think was her first movie role, right, in this movie? Yep, her debut. So a couple of fairly well-known actors from the 80s, even if it was at the beginnings of their careers. And this is a movie that just, aside from controversy that reared its head 30 years after the fact, this is a movie that I think vanished more or less from the public consciousness for one reason or another, because I can't remember a whisper of this. I would have been too young probably to have any idea of it when it came out in its theatrical release, but even subsequently, not something I ever remember seeing on cable TV just rerunning on a Saturday afternoon, whereas I clearly remember the TV edits of things like Fast Times at Ridgemont High and The Breakfast Club playing all the time. This feels like such a quintessentially 80s movie that it should have fallen into that same grouping of movies at least and one of those things that just got played on reruns on tv over a 10 15 20 year period but it didn't and i'm not really sure why what's the missing ingredient to this one that john hughes movies had let's say that captured people's attention very good comparison also so many high school movies for him, so many scenes set in class. This is High School Week unintentionally for me with my podcasts because Bev and I did Donnie Darko a few days ago. And that one sets a lot of scenes in class, not just in high school, but actually in class. This one, we don't see the class so much, but we see school activities a ton of times. And the last maybe half hour is the high school football game, which is why this is a sports movie podcast, even though we're jamming in a little bit to that category. I don't know why it got lost in the shuffle. You're right. It probably should have been played because it isn't even controversial. You don't have to edit any bad language out except for that one F-bomb he says to the coach. You could fix that easily enough. There's no sex. It's a very sweet movie. I don't know why it got lost. You're right. But it didn't bring up big crowds in 86. It wasn't exactly a flop, but even all these young stars didn't draw people out to go see it. You just said it's a very sweet movie. There's not a lot of controversial content within the movie itself. I think as controversial as it gets is the implication that Lucas is, well, not the implication at the end of the movie, it's explicitly stated that Lucas's father is an alcoholic and it's never said, but you don't know. It might be implied that he's, if not a deadbeat dad kind of alcoholic, potentially abusive as well, because we know that Lucas spends basically his entire existence outside of his home, if he can, with his awesome tape deck. But aside from that, like you said, it's not sexy per se. There's some weird scenes of objectification of cheerleaders and stuff, which made me feel creepy as a 40-year-old guy watching this movie, but that wouldn't have been the case if I was a teenager, obviously. Maybe it was just too feel-goody and too sweet for the era. You said the end, so... Yeah, there was a slow clap. I didn't expect that. Is this where the slow clap of Rudy came from? Did they pull it from Lucas? Maybe. This is a Rudy story in many ways because he wants to play football. He's too small. They won't let him. Although Rudy was capable of actually playing with the college guys. He wouldn't have been a star, but he did play those two downs and made a sack, as we see in that movie. Lucas clearly shouldn't be out there. And it's interesting, too, that Cappy is mad at him. One of the only times, if not the only time, he's ever mad at him in the whole movie. And I think it's because, A, Cappy does want to win this game. But, B, because he is worried that Lucas could get hurt. And guess what? The next play, Lucas gets badly hurt. Yeah. On that play, there are so many things that are wrong. 
There are two forward passes. You can't do that because right. the shovel pass by the quarterback to Lucas, that's the one pass you get in a play. And then Lucas runs downfield after he flips it back to the quarterback. So you can't do that. The play would be whistled dead. He never actually caught the ball. Lucas didn't. It was an incomplete pass. So when the other player picks it up, that doesn't matter. The play would be whistled dead. Lucas never had control. And when he takes off his helmet, again, they would whistle it because that's a safety thing. Even if it was a big, strong guy, let alone a little guy. And also, Lucas lined up as a lineman, so he was an ineligible receiver. <laughs> yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because all that was running through my head, less so because of all of the plays that were illegal. I'm watching and thinking, okay, well, that's kind of lazy. But as soon as Lucas pulls off his helmet to try to catch the ball, drops the ball, grabs onto the, I don't know what the position that guy was supposed to be that recovered the not fumble and started running it downfield. And he's just like hanging off that guy for like a good 20 to 30 yards before he gets tackled and crumpled under the scrum. What is the ref doing this whole time? You've got a kid who's all of 80 pounds soaking wet that the whole world has said, you're not allowed to play because you're going to get yourself killed. And he doesn't even have a helmet on anymore. And you're just letting the play happen. Insult to injury, right? The ref is the guy that says, coach, you got a man down. Call the doctor. No kidding, dude. He's down because you didn't blow the whistle during the like 18 opportunities that you had to end this play for a variety of reasons. I felt like if nothing else, there should have been a scene after this where you just see the referee emptying out his locker just because he got canned <laughs> for negligence after all this was done. To paraphrase Glenn Close in the paper, you are so blanking fired. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, this plays in my nutshell, actually. High school football team loses regular season game by 17 points. Yep. That checks That's out. That's the score, wasn't it? 17 nothing when they put Lucas in. So this whole big deal about he can't play, they're getting waxed anyway. But they do set up that whole scene as if Lucas is going to come in and save the day. The music, the way it's built up, you got to think reasonably it's not going to happen. But we've seen so many movies where an underdog helps a team win. Lucas, reasonably speaking, should never do that. But that's what we've seen in thousands of other movies. And instead, he plays, what, two plays, gets himself badly hurt. And then his team loses by even more than maybe 17 points. Bev asked if they keep playing the game. We don't see that. It seems like the entire team went to the hospital. We don't clearly see the two bullies, Bruno and Spike. So Tom Hodges and Jeremy Piven. Jeremy Piven with one hell of a grown-up hairline. He was about 21 at the time. He looks like he's about 35. <laughs> yeah, I know. I thought that too. This poor 16-year-old kid. He's balding already, eh? Air quotes, 16. <laughs> right. So we don't see those two guys at the hospital, but we see a lot of other people. Of course, his circle, Lucas's circle is there, and his true friends are there even through the night, it seems. They're all asleep, except for Maggie, who talks to him and has that really nice conversation, really quiet conversation in the hospital. Lucas asks, where will we be in 17 years? Because the locusts are going to be gone for that long. And that's interesting watching this movie right now, because we're having a cicada thing. I guess a problem here in Canada. Maybe it's in America. I don't even know. But right as the time we record this, the cicadas have been a big deal here in somewhere in Canada. I think it might be the West. Anyway, the point is... He makes that point about them being gone. Where will we be in 17 years? Will they know each other? I hope so. You almost have to turn the volume up to hear that. It's such a quiet, it was very beautiful low. little scene between these two young actors. Corey Haim is terrific in this film, but so is Carrie Green, who only ever acted in a half dozen films, including Summer Rental, which I like, the John Candy film the year before this. And the other one before this was The Goonies, which is an iconic film, but only three other movies in her whole career. I don't know why she stopped acting. She looked vaguely familiar. I think it is from Summer Rental to me, but she was good. And you're right. Corey Haim, I thought, did a really good job with this particular role. We have to talk about the 80s style bullies in this movie. Piven, he's like one of the sidekick Cobra Kai dudes that's in Karate Kid that's yeah. just screaming things like, get him a body bag or something from the sidelines. That's his kind of role in this movie. He's just off to the side giggling and laughing the whole time. But the main bully, and you said his name, and I can't remember what it is because it's an actor I'm not familiar with. 
Bruno, Tom Hodges. I always know him from Valerie. He's Jason Bateman's friend, I think his best friend in Valerie, and then Valerie's family after Valerie Harper quit the show. I've seen him in other things probably, but that's where I know him from, and this. And he's the one that's the worst. He's the one that puts the hot stuff on Lucas's crotch. And Lucas is embarrassed running out. Everyone's laughing at him. But you know what? In that scene, we see Winona Ryder, as cute as she is, wearing those band hats. That is embarrassing. Way more embarrassing than him being out there in a towel, trying to find water to cool down his crotch. But did you notice one thing about that scene? That after they apply the hot stuff to the groin, and incidentally, if you've ever accidentally applied Icy Hot or something to the old nether regions... Because I've done that before. I'd injured a muscle and just got out of the shower or something. You put it on the muscle and you forget to wash it off your hands. That does not feel good. That scene, oof, that brought back some memories for me. But as he's running towards that fountain, because he just can't take it anymore, right? He's up there in the towel, he's running towards the fountain. There was a huge lake just beyond the fountain. If you've got an option of airing out your crotch on top of a water fountain in front of the cheerleaders and the band, or just diving into a lake where you can just sink under the water, just dive into the lake, man. What are you doing <laughs> choosing the most embarrassing option? Come on. I guess the fountain was marginally closer, so maybe he was just going to That the... was what it came down to. Yeah. I think that's exactly what it was. He needed it right now, and he couldn't wait even two more steps, let alone maybe five more seconds. I guess that's true. There was a lot of bullying from that Bruno guy towards Lucas throughout this movie, and we never really are given any explanation for that except that Bruno's just a dick. He's just the high school, quintessential high school jock bully. But I loved the way he was presented early on in this movie, particularly when they meet him at the screening of The Fly. He's supposed to be a bully. He's supposed to be tough. He's supposed to be scary. And as you alluded to, the AV friend of Lucas is not scared of him, which was a great little touch. But the fact that he rolled up and was trying to bully Lucas, and he was wearing some kind of woolen knit tank top thing that was the dorkiest looking sweater, vest, whatever the heck it was I've ever seen in my life. It kind of took a lot of the edge off of his bullying to me because I couldn't take my eyes off the sweater. There were some great sweaters throughout this movie. Charlie Sheen had a few, but... I don't think I've ever seen a heavy woolen knit tank top <laughs> with nothing underneath it. The fashion choices in this movie are just moi. The movie is set in the early fall. It could be really warm still. It might be September 10th or 20th or something like that for all we know. But not really the time you walk around in just a tank top either, necessarily, <laughs> that time of year. And that's why it's a thick woolen knit one, I guess. I guess so, yeah. Because <laughs> it was set and filmed in Illinois especially in and around Chicago in August of 85, and then came out March 28th the next year, so 35 years ago is when Lucas came out. This was also an interesting little quirk of this movie when registration is delayed because somebody had committed suicide, and that's just like a running theme throughout is people talking about this suicide as a result of unrequited love towards a dental hygienist or assistant or something. But Lucas gets bullied in the crowd by some tough guy in a leather vest and cut off fingerless gloves. And when the camera pans up to the face of the bully, it's just like a spectacular, not quite flock of seagulls hairdo, but just mm -hmm. yep. so quaffed. This is one of those elements of 1980s films, just because of the nature of the hairstyles of the era, that takes some of the fear factor away from some of these bullies. Because you look at this person and you're like, you're trying to be tough. But I know that style, to achieve that, you spent at least half an hour in front of a mirror with multiple <laughs> cans of hairspray. Anybody that takes that long styling their hair is no longer an intimidating high school bully in my eyes. I'm sorry. It's just you've lost a lot of that sheen. But then after that scene, they're taken into the auditorium for a little bit of a school pride, because as you were alluding to, this is a fall movie. This is the beginning of school. And Lucas gets bullied by 
Bruno as the entire football team is being taken up on stage, as would become a running theme for me throughout this movie as well. This is in the midst of an entire high school's assembly, and they're just watching this kid get physically picked up and dropped on stage and bullied, and no teachers make any effort to stop it. They're all just watching it. Everybody starts laughing, and yes, I get Lucas at the end of it all sort of becomes a fan favorite because he starts dancing on stage and stuff. But the only time any teacher addresses this very blatant bullying is when the coach turns to him and says, get your ass off the stage. I need to say something now, kid. Who are these teachers? It's the most <laughs> negligent group of adults around these kids that I can ever imagine seeing. They're more worried about Bruno beating them up, I guess, than the AV dork is because, yeah, they may be terrified. But it is a nice touch that Lucas owns that moment and gets the crowd on his side. But then it's also yeah. not as good a piece of writing because I do love that that's what they do in this movie. So many movies, he would have been humiliated the whole scene, but he's not. He owns the moment. But then when the coach says, get off the stage now, kid, wherever it is, and then, okay, fine. As I said to Bev, he could have just done one more funny thing. He kept on doing that, hey, look at this guy gesture of the thumb. And he got laughs each time. He could have done that one more time as he's leaving. So he could listen to what the coach said, but get another laugh rather than be embarrassed. Because you already beat the embarrassment. Why are you embarrassed at the end of that moment? But he's also a kid. He's meant to be a super smart, socially inept kid. But I never really understood what his obsession was with the whole getting caught up in appearances kind of stuff. Superficial. He keeps on using the word superficial. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. The reveal at the end of the movie is his own personal circumstances are much poorer than the tales he weaves for everybody throughout the movie. But I never really got how that superficial obsession played into the desire he had to weave this story of like a successful family or parents caught in the rat race. Very 1980s my parents are stuck in the rat race they're go-getters they're making a lot of money all that kind of stuff john hughes's kids characters almost always came from money yeah unless that was a specific point like judd nelson in breakfast club where he doesn't have money and some of john hughes's characters lived in mansions steve martin and planes trains and automobiles at the end my god what a great house the funny thing about planes trains and automobiles yeah that's middle america in apparently in the late 80s early 90s everyone just has a mansion no big deal single parent income normal job 6,000 square foot house. Very achievable. With every light on. Every light. And can fit multiple families and room for them all. That's right. But as for the bullying, getting back to that, of course, the antithesis is that Cappy is a peacemaker in the movie scene. It's not incredible writing or anything like that, but it's such a smart thing to say if you want to try to defuse the situation because Cappy tries really hard, especially in that moment, to get Bruno off of Lucas without getting himself beat up. Although Cappy can handle himself, but why fight with your teammate? And maybe he thinks Bruno could hand his ass to him too. Obviously, Bruno would if he fought Lucas. He'd beat him up badly. But Cappy's response to, why are we sticking up for him for? Cappy says, why are you always picking on him for? Yeah. What is the point of this? Why are you doing this? We're all here to watch a movie. Have a good time. And he has to say, well, we're all leaving together, so you can't possibly get beat up, Lucas. And it is, again, funny that this guy, Charlie Sheen, is playing such a protector and basically a good dude the whole movie. Yeah, he ends up with Maggie, which is what Lucas wants, but she was never his girlfriend in the first place. Maggie friend zones Lucas from the beginning. Mm -hmm. She treats him like a little brother. She really likes him, but she doesn't see him, as we would say now. She doesn't see Lucas, and she shouldn't when he's 14, and seems like he could even be younger than that. But Lucas gets desperate and just can't grasp that fact, even when Maggie pulls back even more, because she's also interested in Cappy, and they are dating, because Cappy rebounds from Elise straight into Maggie's lips. It's not really laid out all that clearly, I don't think, but I assume the whole purpose of the Winona Ryder character in this movie is just to illustrate the irony of Lucas's approach to everything and his inability to, 
grasp what Maggie tries to tell him, right? Because at one point she very explicitly says, we were never boyfriend and girlfriend. We were just friends. And she's trying to explain, I like you, but I just don't feel that way. And people don't always feel that way about each other. And then she goes on at length and he, you know, he's 14. He pouts. I thought that was pretty realistic. You don't expect a 14 year old kid who's lovesick to react rationally. But throughout the whole movie, Winona Ryder's character, who's both the same age as Lucas, so it's more age appropriate. She has the same interest that Lucas actually has in terms of band and things like that. And she mm -hmm. likes them, right? She's not throwing herself at him, but she's asking him out. She asks him to the dance. She wants to be around him. He does not see her. You're a person I know, but I don't see you as a viable girlfriend or anything like that. You might as well be a boy. You might as well be a boy. And Winona Ryder, incidentally, for the record, this is, of course, an opinion thing, because Carrie Green is very cute. But Winona Ryder is better looking of the two of them, if you want to go just down that level. She's a beautiful woman, yeah. If Lucas had gotten together with Winona Ryder, he could have met Beetlejuice in a few years. And can you imagine how much fun that would have been? <laughs> we could have had a crossover. This movie keeps getting funnier every single time I see it. That and The Exorcist. You just took a swig of a beer. What are you drinking and pairing with Lucas? I've gone full, full hipster, Ryan. I'm drinking at White Claw. A little hard seltzer okay. action. I see. It's a little early in the day. It's middle of the afternoon, yeah, so we're not really in a drinking mood quite yet. I have a bottle of water beside me, which is about halfway done. The hard stuff. I didn't ask you this question until now. We talk about this stuff midway through the podcast about what we're drinking. And now I ask you this question of a movie you just saw a few hours ago. Did you actually like the movie? Because I really do, but do you? I liked elements of it. There were parts of it that I thought were pretty smart and pretty well done. I really thought Corey Haim nailed the performance of the socially inept young kid who's trying to weave a bit of a fake persona, or at least a fake set of life circumstances for himself, while being incredibly intelligent. I really like some of the script choices they made. You talked about how Charlie Sheen's character, I think very believably sticks up for Lucas at various points in the movie and then explains why he does it basically because he's a rational and good human being and Lucas helped him out in the past and they became buddies. And I like the touches at the end. I like the failed play because like you said, it would have been super easy for this to take the cliched broody-esque moment of heroism where he catches the pass and then scores a touchdown, even if they don't win the game, but that wouldn't have been realistic. This kid who has no experience playing football isn't going to catch a Hail Mary pass in the middle of a game, right? He's going to drop it, and that's what happens. So I like that mm -hmm. little upending of what you kind of expect from movie tropes. And then, really, I did not expect the movie to end the way it did. It was a little bit saccharine, I guess, to have the bullies standing by, smiling at him without an intervening moment of explanation about how they had their own come to Jesus moment because I get yeah they respect the fact that he took a hell of a beating on the football field and then just didn't say a word about it and came back to school but it felt like a pretty hard left turn for guys like Bruno and Spike to just be torturing this guy day in and day out and then all of a sudden they love him because he got his ass whooped but nonetheless it was a cool little ending and I can forgive it some slow clapping because this would have happened long before Rudy ruined slow clapping for everybody else. So, <laughs> right. There's some really good elements to it. The one thing that I always struggle with with this style of movie being this high school 80s era type of movie is it's so far removed from my own experiences growing up. I'd be interested to hear about your experiences and how close it was to this. 
I was a little bit too young for this to be my age group in the 80s. Obviously, we were Canadian, so I wasn't around football-centric culture in this way. And I was never in a school environment where jocks and people like that were the cool crowd that were bullying people around them. We had bullies. You're always going to run into people that are bullies growing up. You can run into people that are different little cliques for sure. But this type of atmosphere that is so glorified in 80s high school movie, I can't connect with it. So that's a little bit of a struggle for me with all these types of movies, not just Lucas. But that's my baggage. I get that. My experience in grade school and then high school was not to be bullied much. And if it was, then I must have buried it deep in my recesses of my mind because I don't remember that exactly. But I also, especially by high school, was the guy that could fit into just about any group at the same point was never actually in any one group. Did I have a lot of friends in high school? If you want to have a loose definition of that term, then I had dozens, maybe even more. As Bev likes to point out when I talk about feeling like I'm not accepted by people even now necessarily, a very small group of people seem to, especially at work, where I'm bullied differently in the sense that I'm excluded because I'm not part of the cool team or I don't know what it even is. It's hard to explain. It doesn't really matter. But I was the class president in my last year in school. I won an election to be what effectively is a popularity contest, which still shocks me to this day. I don't know how that happened. But I was the kid that wasn't like Lucas because I wasn't weird like that. But I could have probably gotten along with him and I could have gotten along with Cappy. Could have gotten along with Maggie for sure and the AV guys and Winona Ryder, but I wouldn't have necessarily been friends with any one person in a close kind of way. Maybe that's why I like movies like this though too, because I feel like I could have been their friend because I didn't really have the closest friends when I was in school myself. And David Seltzer, who wrote and directed this movie, by the way, I always think he's the guy that wrote The Sting and then Major League and all that, but that's David S. Ward. David Seltzer wrote The Omen in the 70s and then he also wrote the remake about 15 years ago. But his resume as a director, beyond writing some good stuff, is Punchline with Tom Hanks and Sally Field a couple years after this, which everyone seems to rip on, especially stand-up comics, and then a movie that won some Razzies, Shining Through. Don't know it. So his directorial career is not very impressive beyond this movie, which I think is easily the best thing that he has done. And by the way, I didn't say the numbers. We'll get to that now. So Rotten Tomatoes, 71% of critics liked David Seltzer's movie, 21 reviews only, so it's a pretty small sample, and 70% of audiences. But those are fresh tomatoes on both ends. And it was 81st at the box office that year. Like I said, it wasn't really a hit. But three sports movies were ahead of it, and we've covered two of these. Karate Kid Part 2 was fourth that year at the box office. Color of Money, we covered that way early on in our podcast. It was 12th, and Hoosiers was 35th. So a pretty good year for sports films, if you want to call this one a sports film too. And we are doing that. <laughs> And as for the ending, one of the reasons why that maybe doesn't completely work, even though you say it did work on you, but why you might have issues with it, or other people probably do have issues with it, is that they reshot it. I don't know what the ending was going to be. Presumably, they'd have some kind of payoff to the Winona Ryder thing, because she's like, what is her name? Erica Aliniak, I believe, in E.T. is the one who's in Elliot. Mm -hmm. They go to the bus stop early in the film after E.T.'s just gotten to their house. She was so beautiful even then. She says, hi, Elliot, and he doesn't even notice her. So Winona Ryder is that character in this... And at the end, they're making eyes at each other. So maybe finally Lucas sees Rena. That may have been paid off, but the whole thing with him getting a team jacket, that wasn't in there. And I don't know what exactly the ending would have been, but he also had to finally accept that Cappy is with Maggie. And who knows how long that'll last. They could break up in six months or three months for all we know. So even though I might have issues with it myself and the slow clap has been ruined by other films like Rudy, I've been touched by that ending many times, watched it on YouTube, just that one sequence lots of times, and the salty discharge has flowed. It didn't this time, but it often has. I thought it was a sweet ending to the movie, because really, by the end of the movie, Cappy is the guy that takes the girl 
so to speak anyway not truly but kind of takes the girl from lucas in many movies you'd be made to hate him but you don't because in this case you just know he's a nice guy ultimately and you understand where maggie's coming from so aside from bruno and spike there's no real villains here but at the end of the movie it's kind of nice to see lucas get a moment whatever that moment might be now that you've said the bit about the reshoots, I really wish they had maybe included as an alternative ending what would have been, because I like the idea that you just proposed, or maybe it's him just getting together with Renona Ryder's character and seeing what that relationship becomes. That would have felt more real, that would have felt more touching to me, I think. Because what is true throughout this movie and what stops this from being a true one-to-one -one comparison with Rudy is that Lucas never cared about football. That was Rudy's sole focus in raison d'etre. Was it ever? Yeah, and he wouldn't stop telling everyone about it. In this case, he didn't care about football. He explicitly tells you he doesn't care about football. And the only reason he does it is because he thinks that Maggie likes Cappy because of the football thing. So he sacrifices himself to try to make him look more manly to the girl he likes. Which is fine, except that at the end of the movie the whole letterman's jacket that he gets and the redemption of the football players it doesn't really mean that much because he never really cared about that to begin with so if he's cool now with understanding where he and maggie stand and he maybe reach a new understanding with rena that's more meaningful than all of a sudden he's accepted by the football players who really cares well it's a nice touch that the night that cappy is over at maggie's house when he's broken up with elise cappy's the one that says won't you join us for pizza and of course, Cappy and Maggie do go, and that's when they first kiss. But it's Cappy's idea to bring him along. So presumably, now that Lucas seems to finally be over Maggie as a puppy love love interest, mm -hmm. that the four of them, if he's going to date Rena, can be friends and hang out and go for pizza and do those kinds of things together. Yep. That might have been one way to end the film, too, except you do have this big dramatic moment where this kid could have gotten killed or certainly badly hurt. And he wasn't really that badly hurt, I guess, if he's not off school that long. He's got a big scrape on his head, probably concussion, which we didn't really know about back then. But yeah, the payoff with him finally getting it with Maggie happens in the hospital, but he needs to get it with Cappy. And I guess the only way he does is Cappy's in the background smiling and thumping on the locker in sync with the old slow clap thing. Although I guess the real story in this whole film is Lucas is not accepted by most people except for Cappy. I think he does have quite a few friends, but he's not accepted by the whole school. And these bullies are basically saying, we accept him now. So if somebody else tried to mess with him, like that flock of seagulls guy you talked about, Bruno would probably beat the living crap out of the flock of seagulls guy now. Yeah, oh yes. Lucas is in their camp. There are also nice scenes like the orchestra. They listen to the orchestra and the sewer. That's a pretty cool, sweet little moment. You don't see that in movies very often. And then bugging the one guy who's very generous and nice to him. Oh, yeah, here's a program. Here you go, kid. Listen to this. And classical music is played throughout this movie quite a bit. Lucas likes that to get away from his home life, obviously. What do you think of that scene? I thought it was a neat twist because, like you said, you don't see it very often. But just the fact that Lucas is really into classical music. In 1986, he's carrying around not a Walkman, but like a old school tape deck in a backpack yeah. and he's just playing it for himself and i thought that was just like a neat character touch because it's never remarked upon really beyond the fact that he takes maggie to go listen to an orchestra with him and he's really into what's being played he mooches a program from the guy above the sewer grate and he's looking at it and getting really into the program for the evening there's a few scenes we get with him where he's listening to that little backpack. And again, it's just not reparked upon. It's just an element of who he is. So I kind of like that as a character development piece. One of the things that made this such an 80s movie for me were the music cues, which at times were cool and, and really well done. And at times felt super heavy handed to me. 
one of those moments was the first time he meets Maggie and she's just practicing her tennis stroke against the chain link fence on the court and he's staring at her and then after he initially makes contact, reaches behind himself and starts playing the music. Presumably the music within the world of the movie is quite low and only he can hear it and maybe Maggie can hear it a little bit. But it starts booming over the soundtrack, playing very loudly. So in my mind, all I can think of is what if he's trying to surreptitiously watch her? He just pressed play, but he had the volume cranked. So he's just blasting <laughs> orchestral music at her as he's trying to surreptitiously stare at her through the fence. That kind of stuff where the music cues were, I thought, a little bit heavy handed, took me out of some of those moments. The music is not great in this movie. It's not good at all, I wouldn't say. Walk of Life played at one point, which, you know me, I'm a dire streets guy. Oh, I love that song, too. I'm talking about the music score, Fair. not the yeah. songs that are played. You touched on the moment when Maggie and Cappy have their first kiss after they invited Lucas, but he refused to come because he was pissed off. There was a super saccharine piece of score for this movie that was playing over that entire scene that was just brutal to listen to during that dialogue. So I don't know if that's the kind of stuff you're thinking of, but I agree with you. Aside from the licensed music, the score is a little bit rough, I think. And also there's nice touches like him teaching everyone about the locusts when they nearly wipe out coming off the road. Hell, that could have been a horror movie moment. Yeah, but they're where cicadas. They're all exposed. They say locusts, don't they? They say locusts. So they have that wrong. But they are cicadas. You can see the giant red eyes. That is stereotypically cicada. When you happen to mention that in your intro, like, yeah, hit the nail on the head, Ryan. That's exactly right, because right, that's what's in these movies. Or in this okay, movie, right? So then Lucas is wrong, but he teaches them about the locusts, the cicadas, and they all have a nice connection. But then one of them, it might even be Spike, but they're all getting along. It's fine. Anyway, one of the guys knocks it out of Lucas's hand and they squash it. They're kids. You got to forgive them for that. But that teaches you everything right there about the way kids can be. And then Lucas and Maggie are both just standing there so dejected. I think Maggie feels like, I really like this guy. Yeah. And his girlfriend is blonde and prettier than me, which is debatable, actually. Although Courtney Thorne Smith was a beautiful girl. By the way, on the cheerleading squad before Maggie joins, this was true in my high school, too. They weren't very good looking. <laughs> and apart from Courtney Thorne Smith and then eventually Maggie on this cheerleading team, not very good looking. Surprisingly, that's always the cliche, like in Bring It On, where almost everybody, if not everybody, is gorgeous. On this team, not so much. But anyway, I guess the point with Maggie and Lucas being dejected is, oh, you killed the bug and mm -hmm. we're having fun with you guys. We don't really belong with you yet, especially Lucas. And then I did bring you into my camp by teaching about locust cicadas, and then you ruined it. That use of cicadas and insects generally being a deep interest of Lucas throughout this movie. And again, it's just fun character building stuff that I thought was used pretty effectively throughout the movie. But earlier on, when Maggie drives by the house that we are meant to believe Lucas lives in earlier, but in reality, we later find out he works for the gardener that actually does the lawn on that giant house. She calls Lucas over as he's mowing the lawn on a ride-on mower and just starts talking to him. And then she points out, you have a bug on your shirt. That is the first time we see what he calls a locust. In reality, it's a cicada. I actually don't know if cicada... Maybe cicadas are just part of the locust family. I don't know that. So maybe it is fine. But anyway, she points out the giant bug on his shirt. He goes through the whole explanation of, oh, no, I was mowing the lawn. I saw it on the lawn. Its wings are still wet. It's newly hatched. It can't fly away. So I'm just keeping it here for safekeeping until it can leave on its own. That's a really cool way of introducing some character intelligence because he understands these insects, he understands their life cycles. For a young kid, that's pretty impressive. It's not a common hobby, obviously, so it's like a character quirk, but it also demonstrates an intrinsic kindness that this character is supposed to exhibit because he's saving insects while mowing the lawn, and how many people would take the time to do that? 
So I thought that was a really elegantly handled way of winning Lucas over for the viewer. Like all of a sudden you feel like, okay, this kid who started out the movie a little bit creepy and a little bit weird, he's got heart and you start rooting for him because of those kinds of little moments. And I think Mm -hmm. that's one of the things the movie does very well throughout is really introduce these little character moments and not just for Lucas, but for characters like Cappy and Maggie as well at various points. One of the nicer scenes in the movie, of course, is when Cappy and Maggie are in the laundry room and she's washing the sweater for him. So much tension there. I guess they're just into each other in a sexual kind of way. But they're so young, especially her, they probably don't really know what to do with those feelings. Well, he's already been with Elise and we see them making out in the movie, so he knows what he's doing, I guess. But it's a really great scene and one of those examples of the fact that Charlie Sheen can act. We've covered him in Major League and Eight Men Out before those two baseball movies a couple years after this, basically. So Sheen was at the height of his powers, or starting to be at the height of his powers. He's in Platoon this same year, that great role in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and the police station, that one scene he has. For all of his faults, he can be such a good actor. It is interesting, though, to think that we're rooting for him so much in this movie, maybe more than any other movie, and yet on the set, as we said earlier, he was doing terrible things. And Charlie Sheen is not exactly a good dude. He is basically a dirtbag. Just so odd because his brother has never been controversial. Emilio Estevez has never done anything that I've ever heard like Charlie Sheen has done. But mm-hmm. in this movie, and I can watch it, I know a lot of people say, I can't watch Charlie Sheen anymore. I can. I can watch a Woody Allen film. I can watch Kevin Spacey again. I haven't in a while, but I could. And you didn't know these things, so you didn't have a problem with that one element, although he's not the most likable guy. But it sounds like you also did like him in this role. Yeah, I did. And like you said, we've talked about him in a few other movies. And as much as I came to loathe the sideshow that he became back in this era, he can play a very likable and very soft-spoken kind of character, as we've discussed in this podcast. I do struggle more than you do with understanding real-life elements of actors and trying to ignore that while watching them in a role. So people like Kevin Spacey at this point I can't really watch anymore because I just know too much about the man to see past it. Like you said, I didn't know quite as many details about this specific time in Charlie Sheen's life, so it would make it harder for me to watch it now. But you're right, that moment between Maggie and Chappie is very sweet and kind of earnest, and you do see that soft-spoken element of his nature, and they play it very well. The one thing that, well, there's kind of two things that I found a little bit amusing, at least, around that scene. The first was he takes his sweater off because he got it covered in goo during home ec, right? Because the home ec teacher was kind of taunting him. I found that a little bit creepy because he's supposed to be a 16-year-old kid, right? Maybe Mm. he's 17. I don't think we're ever given his specific age anyway. But we're meant to understand he's about 16. And the home ec teacher just kept calling him a big, strong man. That theme recurred throughout the movie is people calling these high school kids that play football big, strong men. And I guess it was an attempt to try to contrast that to Corey Haim, who was a very slight young guy. But it came across objectifyingly creepy to me in that particular scene. And then she asks him, so you big strong man, you know how to use this blender, right? To blend this smoothie or whatever we're making. And he's like, yeah, no problem. And he's standing right over as full a blender as you can possibly get. Mm -hmm. The liquid is Mm -hmm. right up to the edge. And he just looks at it and doesn't make any effort to try to find anything to cover over it and presses the button and, okay, what do you expect? It exploded all over him. And (laughs) I get that they're looking for an excuse for him to have this moment with Maggie and the laundrette of the school and all that kind of stuff. But it was just such a dumb thing. (laughs) Even if you're the biggest rube in the world, you know that you got to cover that up. You know the second you hit blend, something's going to explode at the top, (laughs) especially when it's that full. Maybe Cappy's dumb. 
I think we're supposed to understand he might be a really nice guy, but he might not be the brightest bulb either. You know, it could be mm. just one of those things. But while Maggie and Cappy are having that little moment in the laundrette and that little heart to heart, Charlie Sheen at this point is like 21 in reality. I guess he has a tattoo on his shoulder because there's some oh clearly there's yeah. some really bad makeup not good makeup and it just looks yeah. like he's got either an enormous green bruise on his shoulder or a covered up tattoo it is a covered up tattoo i was reading about that but i think i knew that anyway because okay. he has to do a topless scene in platoon early on and they have to carry gear i think off of a helicopter that's still got the propellers whirring and he complained to oliver stone i'm getting rocks at me in the back and everything like that and it's gonna show my tattoos anyway and just, ah, just we'll cover it up with makeup so he has a lot of tattoos everywhere. I think he might have had one at that time on his back, and I'm sure he has a lot more now. But yeah, the makeup on that is terrible. And I don't know why they didn't just frame the sequence differently. Have it be yeah. that his right arm is not front row center of the camera, and it wouldn't be so obvious. That's exactly right. The way they frame it, the way they have him sitting, is you're just looking directly at that shoulder for much of that sequence, and it's really hard to look away from. I didn't know if that was one of those things where in 1986, if you're seeing this in the theater or later on VHS or something, the resolution of the shot would have been so low that maybe it's not quite as egregious. Still, no way. That would still show up, I think. It was not good. The last thing that always came to mind with me was the principal character. We see Lucas try to force his way, almost Rudy-esque, onto the football team in a desperate attempt to impress Maggie. And the coach tells him, you ain't doing this. Although at that point, he cites some discrimination decision of right. the Supreme Court that I think is more intended for gender equality purposes, but he cites it on the basis of, I want to try for the team. The Supreme Court says, you can't stop me unless you cut me for performance reasons. At which point I'm just like, all right, coach, have him run some drills, tell him he's inept and cut him. And then you can say, I tried mm -hmm. you out. But they don't do that. And then, of course, the principal speaks to him and says, listen, I'm not letting you suit up until your father... I think he says the parents, actually, but we later find out the mother's probably not in the picture. So the principal says, I'm not letting you suit up until I speak to your parents about this. And then Lucas weaves a story, a different story every time. And at this point, his father is a civil rights attorney and he's going to sue the principal if uh, he's not allowed to suit up. Yeah, we find out that Lucas has been lying to everybody about his parents because he's ashamed of his father's alcoholism and his life circumstances. But surely the principal knows who the parents are of the students enrolled in their school or could find a way to reach out like they have a contact number or something. They wouldn't be entirely reliant on this 14-year-old kid to act as a liaison. If your son is in trouble at school, you don't say, okay, Ryan, you're in big trouble. Go tell your father to come in and speak to me because you're going to get the riot act read to you. They would call the parents, right? They cut the middleman. Yeah. I would say so at any point you would do that. I get lying to the friends. You can get away with that, presumably. But the administrators of the school, I feel like that's something they would be able to see through pretty easily, right? Well, Rena knows the truth. And Rena's the one that takes Cappy and Maggie to the trailer park. Cappy knew that he worked for a gardener. Maggie knew none of these things. So maybe the principal knows all these things, even more than Rena does. And he knows it's pointless to try to talk to his dad. And as you said, the mother doesn't seem to be around at all. And Lucas obviously can handle himself when it comes to a conversation or an argument with somebody. He does have Luca Plakia. He's a convincing young guy. But as you said that, you know what? I think you might be right. The principal doesn't want him to play full stop and offers him an out so that he's not going to take, thereby just stopping him from playing, at least in the principal's eyes. So maybe you're right. I was overthinking that a little bit too much. What do you think of, I guess it's Guy, maybe it's Guy Boyd, who's the coach. I think he's fun in this. He's also in Foxcatcher, which we'll probably do at some point, the amateur wrestling movie. Channing Tatum and Steve Carell. And then Gary Cole is supposed to be in this as an assistant coach. 
He is? Of course, Gary Cole, we covered in Talladega Nights and has been in a thousand movies. I knew he was in it, but I forgot when we were watching it and I forgot to look for him. But I guess he's somewhere in those football scenes. And you'd think he would stand out, but I didn't notice him. But we did see an awful lot of the coach, just called Coach in the credits. I do like that moment at the end when Lucas says the Jack and everybody's celebrating him. He sees it and just rolls his eyes. Oh, God. That's a funny little thing. There's some good laughs in this whole movie, and certainly some of them are with Coach. Did you like his character? Yeah. He's a jerk, but he's a good character. Yeah, he's a bit of a heel in the movie. But you're right. The pinnacle of the character for me was that last scene in the movie. He just walks through the hall and sees what's going on and, like you said, rolls his eyes. It's a good little bit of physical comedy going on there. I liked the... I don't want to say realism because it's not real, but the actions he took made a certain amount of sense to me throughout the movie, which is all I really ask out of these things. And I think at various times I've complained about this in other movies where people do stuff that just makes no sense. In this case, you understand where the coach is coming from. Aside from that scene in the assembly where he just allows all the bullying to go on in front of him, when this like tiny kid shows up in the field and says, let me play, what are you talking about, kid? Get out of here. You're going to get waxed. He probably should have just tried him out and cut him, but the script can't have that happen, so whatever. And then thereafter in the game, the things he does make sense. When the kid, Lucas, puts on the excess uniform and runs out on the field and says, put me in, coach, he's like, no, get the hell out of here. What's wrong with you? You're not playing. Go away. And then allows himself to be argued into it when Lucas gets under his skin and says, listen, you're down, whatever. You got nothing to lose. Put me in. I think we're meant to understand it's a little bit of like a small town America here. So he's not the top of the heap of the coaches, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think Lucas even says you're a second rate coach, a third rate team or something or a third rate coach on a second rate team. We understand he's not the best of the best. So when the kid gets under his skin and says, you got nothing to lose, like, yeah, all right, fine. Get in there. You're right. I got nothing to lose. You're going to get your ass whopped or whooped. Go for it. The guy does a good job of it. And he's got some like good physical acting going on with his little match under the lip kind of thing in place of a, toothpick and things that leads us to the depiction of the sport which i think is fairly realistic when we do see the football and the cheerleading and the tennis as well earlier on a pipsqueak gets creamed by big strong guys and he should even if he had his helmet on he should if you're gonna play you're gonna get hurt yeah happy knew it everyone knew it probably even including lucas actually no lucas has no fear i don't think he did know as smart as lucas is he isn't really aware if you will he's not woke to his own failings and size and lack of sexual appeal to a girl two years older than he is, who friend-zoned him immediately. And as far as scoring, well, we have to tread carefully because it's all young people. Well, some of them are in their 20s, like Sheen and Jeremy Piven at least are 20, 21. But they are attractive young people. We talked about Ryder and Green and Sheen. Haim is a cute little kid. But we probably shouldn't be scoring this movie at our age, so we'll get past that. Yeah, just leave that one alone. Although I do have to admit, every time we watch a movie... I guess we haven't watched too many of this kind of movie over the course of this podcast, but anything so embedded in the 80s just is immediately kind of funny for me. When you start seeing that fashion and those haircuts, it doesn't matter how beautiful the people involved in the movie might be, there's a goofy factor to it right off the get-go because the 80s was just a goofy period of time. That is true, and I'm sure a lot of cocaine was on the set too. Not only rape, but probably a lot of cocaine it was in the mid-80s. I would give this movie an 8 out of 10, 7.5, 8 out of 10 at least. I've always enjoyed it, enjoyed it all over again. How about you? Yeah, I was going to give it a 7.5 as well, because I think a lot of the faults that I might cite in the movie are less the movie's fault and more my inability to connect with it because of my own experiences in life, and I can't really hold it to account for that. But it's good. I was surprised at how much I enjoyed it, and that's kind of why I asked you the question... Why is this the forgotten movie of the 80s? Because it feels like it should be within that pantheon of John Hughes-esque movies that everybody talks about from this time period. 
I'm glad our listeners have a chance to listen to this one, and hopefully they've seen the movie and will listen to this one. But it wouldn't shock me if they haven't seen it, because it seems like not a lot of people did then or have since. That is the funniest thing about this, right, is not only is it forgotten, it's bloody hard to watch now. You own the DVD, and that's why you suggested it. There's been no movies yet that we've talked about in this podcast that I would have been unable to find on YouTube for rent or on Amazon for rent. But this movie does not exist online. As far as I can tell, it has zero presence. You can't rent it. You can't stream it. You can't do anything. So unless you own the DVD or can find a hard copy of the DVD somewhere, it's a bloody hard movie to find. Must be the Charlie Sheen element. Maybe. I don't know. Although his movies are generally available. Well, something that's very available, and it's on Crave here in Canada. I don't know if Crave's international, but anyway, it's on Crave here in Toronto. It's Ford versus Ferrari, our first auto racing movie in over a year, and we'll be talking about that in two weeks. Christian Bale, Matt Damon, which you have not seen, right? I haven't seen, but I am so desperately looking forward to the inevitable Batman impressions that are going to come out of this movie. I like to go fast. I'm over that. You lie. I'm not over it. I'm ready to believe in good. Okay, we are on Twitter. I am at MovieFiend51. Chris is at Scoring at Movies. You can find all of our episodes wherever you get your podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. So subscribe to us and rate us. That helps us grow this show. We've done 80 episodes. Let's try to do 80 more and get a bigger audience because who doesn't want that? Take her easy, Lucas. Get those extra long sleeves taken in because you look ridiculous in that jacket.